Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players, proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Henry and I founded Volant out of our own frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes we saw in badminton all over the world. But now it's so much bigger than that. Our mission is to simplify the badminton journey and show the world how incredible badminton is. So make sure you check out our badminton basics at volantwear.com and follow us on our socials at volantwear. So for today's episode of the podcast, we are speaking to Peter Briggs. He's a professional badminton player who has represented Canada at the Mandarin Badminton Club based in Markham. He's from England originally and has competed at many major BWF events where he has reached 13 international finals, has reached a career high world ranking of number 34 in men's doubles and has been the English national champion. One of his great victories over the former number one men's double pair from Malaysia, Pu Kian Keep and Tan Bin Hong at the Thomas Cup in 2016. There's nothing that can prepare you mentally as well as sticking to a solid routine. So if that routine is just taking some time to take a breath before you step on court, maybe go find a quiet space for a few minutes and just make that part of your warm-up routine. Get yourself warm and ready. Enjoy the adrenaline of, of the prep for the match. And then just take a moment to calm it down before you get out there and compete. If something isn't working for you, you have to change it. We all fall into routines and patterns so easily. And we do as we're told a lot of the time, which is a great thing, you know, to learn from your coaches, etc. But if you find that something isn't working, if it's not helping you improve, you can change it. Peter, thanks for coming on to this episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I've been listening to your podcast for a little while and yeah, I'm really excited to be on it. Awesome. So Peter, let's get started. We always like to dig into where all of the guests come from and how they started in the sport. So can you give us a bit of a rundown as to how you got introduced to the sport and how you ended up here today talking to us? Yeah, absolutely. I'll try and keep it fairly concise. So I started playing badminton just like a lot of people out there. It was just a fun sport that my mother introduced me to. She was incredibly athletic, still is, of course, and it was involved in local tennis clubs, badminton, all sorts of other sports. 
And she basically kind of, well, I wouldn't say dragged me around because I loved going and competing in all the sports. So she took me around, introduced me to everything. And yeah, when I got involved in badminton, it was very much more casual. Well, I guess it's just as casual as what you'd expect from a kid. I was sort of eight to 10 years old. At the time, I was highly focused on tennis because I played for my county, so provincial team sort of thing over here. But I just fell in love with badminton. It's one of those sports where you really do just enjoy yourself and there's so much creativity behind it. There's so many interesting things that you can do on court that it just kept me coming back, really. So competitive-wise, my mum took me to a a local competition. So that was kind of the first thing that I ever competed in. Just, you know, with the local kids at the schools and stuff like that, I ended up winning that one. So she was like, you know what, let's take it to the next level. Took me to a regional tournament, which again, I, I somehow ended up winning. So then she was like, okay, you know what, let's take this to a national level. And I think I placed fourth at the junior national level. It must have been under 11, I think. I just remember how much fun I had and, you know, how nice everybody was. It was so obvious to other players and parents that I was just getting by by hand-eye coordination. I wasn't even, you know, there was no particular skill from my end. It was just, I knew how to hit it. I distinctly remember I was getting absolutely trashed in the semifinals by Chris Coles and his dad, after the first game, his dad had decided, you know, this guy's not a threat to my son. I'm going to come on court and I'm going to teach him how to hold the racket properly. So I actually learned how to hold a backhand grip. I was taught by the father of someone who was uh, whooping my ass in a, in a <laughs> national event. So were you still playing tennis at this time or did you decide to stop playing tennis when you started to play at the different levels of the competitions? Um, that's a weird one because I really don't remember making a decision about stopping playing tennis. I think it just kind of phased out, you know, I was enjoying badminton more. So when I was given the option by my mom, she was like, do you want to go and go to tennis practice or badminton practice? I just choose badminton every time. The only real clarity that I have on it is I remember at some point, I must've been 14 or 15. My mom said to me like, oh, we've got like five tennis rackets. Do you want to sell these? And it made me think, oh my God, I've, I've stopped playing tennis. I didn't even, uh, didn't even notice. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. It's like tennis has just disappeared from your life the second you started to play a bit more badminton, hey? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. When you find something that you're passionate about and you enjoy, it's very easy to kind of let other things go and, and not even notice them, them disappearing, really. Yeah, and if you were to look back now, Peter, when you're thinking about tennis versus badminton, what do you think it was about badminton specifically? Was there like, I know you said there wasn't, you know, a particular moment, except potentially when your parents, when your mom asked you if you wanted to sell your tennis rackets, but was there something in particular about badminton that you think now is the real reason why you stayed? Um, honestly, if I look back at it now, I think it's all about the people. So the environment that I got to compete in was just brilliant. You know, I could go and compete against adults in my local club and they would happily have me in, even though they could beat me easily. Whereas, you know, on a tennis court, I was very much restricted to, I could play with kids my age or grandparents. That was pretty much it. And on top of that as well, from my mother's perspective, she said, you know, the badminton parents are just great people. 
So, I, you know, I can't really read into that yet. I'd, I'm not a parent myself and I'd have a kid dragging around to sporting events. But when I get there, I'm sure I'll, uh, I'll probably say the same thing. Yeah. I guess from that perspective with Wimbledon being such a prestigious event and such a great history in England as well, I guess there would come a little bit of, arrogance probably isn't the, the right word, but that kind of, that kind of separation between the, the higher levels or the, the elders compared to the young people in tennis, that's just a, an outside perspective. But does that ring true as well? Um, it does and it doesn't. I think there's extremes in all sports. You know, tennis is clearly the, I don't want to say the more popular, but it's the more funded sport. There's a lot more money involved. And um, I think there's a lot more parents that push their kids. So, you know, I'm a strong believer that there are a lot more failed tennis players that never enjoyed it than there are failed badminton players that didn't enjoy it. And I think, yeah, that kind of is reflected through the process of all the kids decide to quit because they're being forced down this road that they don't want to be, be on. So you're 15, 16 years old. You've thought about selling your tennis rackets and you're getting serious with badminton now as well. So what was the journey for you from that kind of national level where you were taught by your opponent's dad because you weren't much of a threat? Take us through where the pathway was from there and what were the major milestones for you? Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, the pathway, to be honest, I just kind of, I kind of fell into the tracks and the path that everyone else was on. I didn't, I wouldn't say that I particularly made my own headway. I enjoyed being part of the team and you know, when I was a younger player, I definitely didn't think about the bigger picture. I was just following the crowd and realizing that I was as a junior an elite level. So the biggest milestone for me actually would have been in my early 20s when I changed my mindset towards it. But in terms of performance goals and things and the milestones, that would be, I think, the first time I was selected for a senior event as part of the senior national team, even though I was a little younger, that was a, a great opportunity. And then, you know, winning tournaments when you're several years younger than your competition, that's always a big milestone because it kind of tells you, yeah, I can push for something more in this. But I would say my junior career didn't really have that much excitement in it. I think there was a, a semi-final of a senior nationals when I was maybe 17, something like that. But most of my milestones came when I managed to level my head, which unfortunately happened a little later than I would have liked. Yeah. And so you were saying that when you were younger, you did rely a lot on your hand-eye coordination and physicality to win the sport. Was there something or someone besides your opponent's father that helped you overcome that challenge of just being very hand-eye coordinated, very skilled physically and actually start developing your skill set? Yeah, I had some great coaches as a junior that really helped me work on that. So Julian Robertson, who is, well, he's currently a lead coach at the National Centre. I actually remember he used to pick me up from school because he was good friends with my mum and he would take me out for sessions and we'd work on a lot of skill-based stuff. So he is solely responsible for the backhand kill that I can I can deliver with, you know, I'm sure people will tell you a good amount of power. But yeah, so apart from him, I was lucky growing up because my mother realized the importance of being able to compete and being challenged by people a lot better than you. So I think 
when I was maybe 15, 16, I was sparring against Nathan Rice, who was one of the top, you know, I'm saying sparring very loosely because uh, <laughs> I know he had like a million different gears that he could have easily just gone up on. And then a couple of years later, Robin Middleton was one of the strong senior players. I think he's in Australia now. Yeah, he is. Good, good friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, so Robin was a great guy and he took me through some very, very physical and technical sessions when I was a junior and he was training at Milton Keynes. So just all of the exposure to sort of higher level players, because when you play against someone who's that much better than you, you can work as hard as you can on trying to keep in the game. But what happens more often than not is they decide to use a high level skill shot to just knock you out, put you down. So watching that happen to me and trying to learn from that was definitely key to picking up some more racket skills. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you've had a lot of really useful and constructive help along the way. Now, when we go back to what you were talking about before, in terms of that mindset switch that you found that really started to make the difference in seniors, what was that mindset shift that you actually had? And was there someone who helped initiate that? Did someone challenge it? Did someone pull you up on something that helped you make that shift? You know, that's a really good question. So I think subconsciously I'd known that I was missing a bit in terms of the mindset, but too defiant and maybe arrogant to see that I could practice and make a change. So I definitely was given clues and hints by all of the leading figures in my sporting career. But the one that really that really stuck in and helped me make that change was a fellow called Saqib. So he's my sports psychologist. He's based in Malaysia, works with the AM. He's a, he's a close friend of mine. We've, well, we knew each other growing up and then we drifted apart. But I would always see his dad at the All England every year. And he announced his, his career in sports psychology and reached out to me. And yeah, we've been working on my mindset for years now, I guess. I reckon sort of 2016, maybe into 2017 was when we really started working on it. What are some of the key results that you and Sakib have come up with ultimately that you know has shifted your mindset? I think the, the key thing is self-awareness, really. It's being able to reflect, you know, not just in the long term, like, oh, when I was 17, I did this. When I was 20, I did this. But being able to reflect on things in the day and and evaluate the way that you think and the way that you process situations. It takes a, a lot of practice to change your mood. But, you know, for example, if you trip over a curb and nearly spill your coffee, you've got two very clear different ways you can think about that. You can be like, oh, I'm so clumsy. I nearly knocked that over. This is so lucky, etc." Or you could be thinking, yeah, but like, I'm glad I didn't drop it things went well here, it could have gone a lot worse. So kind of the way you process these things helps, well, I mean, if you can get more positive around it, it can definitely uh, improve your mood and, and really help with your training. Yeah, definitely sounds like that perspective piece, right? So looking at the same event, but having a different response to it, and I think it was Victor Frankl who said that between stimulus and response, there's a gap or a space. And that gap or space is your ability to choose your response. So that, that really rings true from that side of things. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, everyone likes to say that we're wired a certain way. You know, our responses are just reactions, but every reaction is an action that can be trained. So if you just 
take your time and you get through it slowly, eventually you're going to train your reactions to be what you want them to be. Okay, so you're a senior now, you've had this mind shift that's really helped you start getting your results. Take us through what went on from there and then how you ended up in Canada as well. Yeah, um, well, Canada is, is definitely an interesting play out. I don't know, I haven't looked into it, but I could be one of the few English players that has come out here in order to maintain my playing career as well. For me, the transition was, I mean, I realized that my, even though I was working on my mindset, I found it very difficult in the environment that I was in to stay motivated, not for the sport. I've always loved badminton. I've always loved competing. It was more for the day-to-day training. I was having to work incredibly hard on managing my reactions and, and staying positive. And obviously I had a lot going on in my life outside of badminton that was affecting my career in a big way. So I realized I needed to make a change in order to keep progressing. I talked to my agent to figure a few things out and to work out what I could do. So this discussion went on for maybe six months. I was talking to him. I was talking to Saqib, my psychologist, and we were trying to find solutions to keep my playing career alive and keep it interesting. So Oliver reached out to a lot of different countries, actually. And that in itself was really, really beneficial for me because he came back to me and he said, this country would like you to be there. This country would like you to be there. And it kind of made me feel a little bit more valued than necessarily I was at the time. So when that came through, it was just a case of running through the countries, trying to work out where I wanted to be and how I wanted my life to look off court as well as on court. So I kind of narrowed it down. I said, all right, I'd like to go to my English speaking as a main language because my uh, language skills aren't fantastic. And I wanted to maintain a healthy social life outside of badminton as well. So that's me with, well, what, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, America. I think South Africa was an option as well. And then from there, I had to narrow it down. I sort of said to myself, okay, Australia, New Zealand, they're great places. I'm sure it'd be a great social life there as well. But it was just a little too far from home and would be a little difficult for me to get back with family stuff. So then I looked at South Africa and kind of said, you know what, I don't really know what the badminton setup's going to be like there. I wasn't 100% sure I'd be able to find a doubles partner that would, you know, necessarily be able to compete at a similar sort of level. So that left America and Canada. And, you know, I recognize that Canada has huge potential, a ton of upcoming younger players. And when I looked into it, they said, hey, you can move to Toronto. And I was like, yeah, you know what? That sounds like a great city. I can have a good life outside of Badminton and focus on my training as well. Yeah, that's how I ended up here. Yeah, that's interesting way that you ended up in Canada and how you had to go through the sort of selection process. Now, I want to explore Canada a bit more, Peter, but I'd like to take a step back first and, and talk about, you know, why you actually ended up deciding to leave England. I know you briefly touched on you were working on your mindset there, but what were some of the challenges or setbacks that was in place in England or the part of the training system in England that you felt that was not a barrier going somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, very interesting because a lot of players will say, hey, the UK has a fantastic setup and they definitely do. The quality on court, I mean, look at the level of the athletes there at the moment. We were regularly training with 
Mark Salango, Kristen Gadby, Badner Sean, all of those sort of players. So the training was brilliant. The facilities were great. But for me, I just felt like it was it was missing something. And I had a difficult path with my playing career. So for anyone who's already read my blog and knows a little bit about my story, I'll try and keep it a little shorter. But my, throughout my career, I think I was removed from funding something like three or four times. The first time was the transition from junior to senior. I, I was asked to move universities in order to get higher training. But I was halfway through my first year, I, you know, I was looking at trying to find a place there and I just didn't want to make that change. So I got my head down, I trained hard at Loughborough University. And then I think it was a year later that led me to being one of the few players that got reinstated onto the England program as a senior. And a few years later, I'd lost my position as a funded athlete quite a few times. It was very challenging. I mean, we all had the very tough challenge at the end of Rio when the government decided to remove funding for the whole program. You know, they call it, what do they call it? Black Monday or something that they called the Bumson Center, but we'd lost half the squad. So half the squad was cut. It was a very difficult time for everyone. I was one of the half of the squad that was cut. And my doubles partner was one of the half that was allowed to stay. So that was an unusual situation because the program, you know, the, the national coaches and stuff said to me, we want you to stay, we want you to train, we want you to compete with your partner, but we're not going to fund you. So that was a really challenging time mentally for me. And then within 12 months, we'd, we qualified and won around at the All England. We um, won our first Grand Prix event, then the English Nationals, and then I was reinstated onto the program, which was fantastic. Yeah, there were just a lot, a lot of challenges for me and a lot of difficult rejections to deal with being part of the national team. There were times in like the Thomas Cup playoffs, so kind of like the European championships, the men's European championships. And I got dropped from the squad halfway through to not be able to play. And my partner was put in with someone else. And that was a difficult time for me because I had to kind of sit there and obviously support the team, want the team to win. But in the back of my mind, I'd be thinking, is this because I'm not good enough? Is this because I haven't earned my place here? So there were a lot of negative thoughts running through my head and the funding situation was difficult. So for me, even though I had access to this great training, I kind of felt like I was getting sidelined a lot. And, you know, not to be particularly annoyed or bitter or anything because I think 90% of the time I deserved to be sidelined I wasn't I wasn't good enough and I wasn't training hard enough but again that's when this mindset change kicked in in sort of 2015 2016 when I really got my head down started training harder um, started working harder but it was almost like I couldn't shake that shadow I couldn't shake that reputation that I had rightfully earned of not necessarily being someone who would work hard enough so once I realized that I'd done everything I could to challenge this and coaches and other players were recognizing that I was challenging it, I was in a really good place. Things were going great. And then I was really unlucky. So the time in 2017 when we put through those top performances, so right after the English Nationals, I think, I started to develop a chesty cough. So that was in September 2017. 
Yeah, you know, I thought nothing of it. Actually, I remember my my sister called me at the time and she said, how are you? And I said, oh, I've had this cough for like two or three weeks now. And she said, oh, you need to get that checked out. And I thought to myself, no, like, who needs to get a cough checked out at my age and my health and my fitness? It's not something I need to worry about at all. And then a couple of months later, I ended up contracting pneumonia. So that was a very interesting New Year's Day. I remember I was in the, I was in the hospital and the doctor took an x-ray of my chest and I was explaining that I couldn't really breathe. I couldn't take in a, a full breath. So at the time I was a little confused, but I wasn't too worried. You know, I knew I was fit as far as I was aware, I was healthy. And it was only when I kind of caught the look on the doctor's face as he saw the x-ray that I sort of thought to myself, oh no, something's going on here. And they said, we'll get back to you next month, uh, let you know how it is. And then two days later, I got a phone call basically explaining that I had consolidation in my lungs, which was, again, that's kind of terminology I didn't really know about. So I did some Googling and it looked bad. <laughs> it looked real bad. The best option for me was pneumonia. So I don't know if there's ever been a position in, in anyone's life where they're praying that they've got pneumonia, but I was definitely in that position in, in January a couple of years ago. So that was a huge, huge setback. and. My coughing fits persisted for, um, well, nearly 30 months. So, 13, three zero. Yeah, three zero. So, yeah. earlier this year was when it cleared. And the funny thing is, I don't even know why it cleared. Obviously, I'm eternally grateful for two reasons. One, I wouldn't want a chesty cough for the rest of my life. And two, I don't know if you know anything about the Canadian medical care over here. They have a great setup, but my God, inhalers are expensive seriously expensive so i'd gone from paying like six pounds so what like 10 australian dollars for a month's worth of medication to 250 wow Jesus. yeah and i thought you know i thought to myself at the time i was like this only happens in america right i didn't think this was a a thing in canada too and then literally i paid for one dose of medication i didn't even finish it my cough just stopped so yeah, I was so, so grateful for that. But that also featured into my move because I realized the people around me had forgotten. And, you know, I wouldn't blame them at all, but every single day I would, I would cough up phlegm and lots of disgusting stuff from the bottom of my lungs every day. And I'd do it in training and I'd have to stop training so I wouldn't be able to breathe. And then I'd just wait a minute and then get back involved. But it got to the point where I'd been doing that for about a year and it's kind of like, I guess, like a baby crying. People just tune it out after a while. So nobody even noticed that I was still not healthy and I wasn't getting the balance and results that I wanted because I couldn't train as hard as I wanted to train. And I think that, that all of that kind of factored into me um, realizing that I needed to do something different. And that's kind of when all the discussions started with my agent about finding something else somewhere else to be wow that is a very deep and yeah there's lots of aspects to that story that definitely sound like a huge challenge for you but you great news that the cough had cleared up and hopefully stays away for the rest of your life that's really good there so if we kind of move into the different systems so now that you've had some experience with the canadian badminton system and of course with the english because you were there training at such a high level for so long what are the main differences between the badminton team in both of the countries? 
And this is a question that was asked by one of the followers, um, Jackson Kirps as well. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not, I wouldn't say they're particularly comparable because it's like two different worlds in terms of elite training. So the training in England is like incredibly high level. Not that it's not high level here, of course, but it's very structured, very regimented. And I think as a result, there isn't that much appreciation for the structure from the players within the structure, if that makes sense. And then in terms of like physical aspects, you have the SNC coaches, the physios, the psychologists. At one point we had like an ice pool. We had every resource that you could think of is at the at the National Centre in England, and it's brilliant. But along with those resources come sort of the aspects of if you're not the top dogs, you're not going to get the best out of the sessions a lot of the time. So I remember, obviously, there are times when you have to give 100% to preparing people for major events. So like, I think I remember the Olympics in 2016. So a few weeks before when the, the Olympic team was getting prepped, I think everyone who wasn't on the Olympic team got a shoulder injury from um, smashing as much as they could to really, really work on the defense. But what I found was that as my career progressed, more and more I was getting put into kind of development groups, which wasn't where I wanted to be. So when I did get the opportunity to train with the top players that I was training with in 2015, 2016, I noticed that I would spend my time on court feeding and not necessarily getting that much opportunity to work myself. So that's the big difference between training in the UK and training here in Canada is that the club setup over here means that none of the clubs are crowded. Every club has, I mean, our club has three or four high level players, but we have a lot of sparring coaches. So, well, I mean, a great example is just training today, right? So I was in today and, um, we had a really big squad, actually, a really big squad today. There was something like 12 or 13 of us. But from those 12 or 13, there was only three players who were actually having the focus on them. So that was me, Josh, and Brian. So we're in training and we're getting fed for two to three hours a day. So I only actually train once a day now in comparison to twice a day in the UK. But I feel like my on-court training time hasn't decreased so not today, but yesterday I did defense. So I had four people attacking me in a half court and I defended for 15 minutes on one side and then 15 minutes on the other side. And then I took a, maybe a five minute break. And then I did two V one attack as it one V two attack where I would attack two defenders. And I did that 15 minutes. So, you know, I've got 45 minutes of really good work out of that. And over in the UK, the sets are a lot shorter. The rotations are a lot higher. So in that same time frame, I would probably only get 15 to 20 minutes of, of really good workout. Now, of course, you get good work when you're feeding too. But, you know, as a player in, in my stage of my career, I'm going to benefit more from being the worker as opposed to the feeder in that situation. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost like the priority levels on you as a player has changed when you've gone from England to Canada so that you are the one that has to go through that higher level intensity and that duration change as well is, is certainly very different. So in terms of what you're doing now, Peter, you're still training yourself as an athlete, 
but you're also offering coaching and mentoring for younger developing players. So can you tell us a bit about that as well? Um, yeah, I, obviously I still train full time and I'm running a mentorship program, which I launched in January. So tough time to launch anything, of course, with coronavirus and everything. But I realized that something that I definitely took for granted during my playing career was the amount of role models that I had. So not to try and put myself down as a role model, but I would want kind of other players to have access to someone who has experience. And I realized that over here in Canada, you know, the juniors, a lot of them have never left the country to compete. A lot of them don't realize that there is a European junior tour that they can go and play. And a lot of them, I think they need some help with the mental side of the game because, again, the big difference between the UK and, and out here in Canada, like we've just discussed, is that here in Canada, the focus is on you. It's all on you to improve your training. But if you don't have the right mindset, you're not going to get the best out of that situation. Whereas in the UK, you have to fight so hard to get to near the top. You have to fight incredibly hard to get to the top, to earn that spot, to earn that training. Whereas over here, it's kind of, it's given to you if you're one of the better players in the club. And if there was a national setup here in Canada, I'm sure it would be different. But because it's club-based, some clubs only have one or two players. So the focus, kind of the mental focus, isn't quite what it could be. So I started the mentorship program in order to help players kind of understand why they're training and what they can get out of themselves as they're training. Because a lot of these drills can be you know, 15 minutes of anything on a badminton court is pretty strenuous. It can be pretty tough. And a lot of the time we end up switching off and just going through the motions. So this program was designed to offer these kids an opportunity to just sit down and talk about it, to understand why they do what they do. And, you know, I offer on-court sessions as well. So we run through a different style of training that they don't currently have out here in Canada. So very much the European style, the shorter sets, the more intense bursts of exercise, because the base that they have here is, is incredible. Like the physical capabilities of these 13 to 16 year olds is something that I never saw in the UK when I was growing up. And I think if they had access to the best of both worlds, they could really develop into some incredibly strong and talented young players. Yeah, that's really interesting that you said that, Peter, because I guess in a system like in the UK where it's so structured and regimented, there is that real pathway for the players to take on to get to the highest levels. I guess in Canada, like similar to in Australia, you you have a lot of potential at this young age, right, in your teenage years, but then it doesn't get nurtured and it doesn't get, there's no clear pathway to get to the top and a lot of players actually fall out that way. And when we were speaking to Tony Gunawans, it was the same thing. We asked him the question, do the kids have this potential that he's seen in Indonesia? And he said, yes, they do have the potential. But of course, the guidance from there is, is difficult in a country that doesn't have that kind of structure like the USA, Canada, et cetera. So I think what you're doing is really important for the kids or the students to show them that pathway that you know firsthand and hopefully bring a different element of badminton pathways and badminton development in Canada that's not currently there potentially? I hope so. My only goal through this program really is to try and help change the path of a few of the players. You know, well, any players that want to come to me, it's not really... Again, this is kind of the thing that, that I enjoyed the most about 
when I was a junior is when some people would take their time, take time out of their day to come and help you and and to come and teach you new things or give you the opportunity to play with them. Like when I was 13, 14 and I could play with the adults at my local club, that was a great help. And I think if I'd had at 13, 14, a mentor that could sort of say to me, like, if we think about it from this perspective, if we look at things this way, maybe we could develop different avenues as well. And it's very much a culture out here in, in this part of the world is that you play badminton because you enjoy it and because it's fun. But when you turn 17, 18, you go to school, you get a degree, you become whatever it was that your parents kind of would like you to become. And what we don't work on is is the fact that being a professional athlete gives you so many different skill sets that you wouldn't necessarily have if you just follow the pattern of school and university and job. Yeah, hopefully we can develop some of the players, even just to prepare them for the real world. Yeah, I mean, certainly being able to develop them and prepare them for, for life and not just badminton is something remarkable that we can do as athletes and with a sport like badminton. Now, Peter, I want to move on to a question that comes from one of our new followers, Greg Mares, also a badminton player. And <laughs> one of your friends, I, I believe. Yeah, I believe he's a friend of yours. And he actually asked you the following question. The second question, I'm not entirely sure what that means. So I have to see if you can clarify what that is. But what are your thoughts about the mental side of the game? And how can you shout people off the court? <laughs> are you really vocal on court? Is that why? Yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> For anyone that doesn't know Greg, he runs the Badminton Insight YouTube channel with his fiance Jenny. And yeah, so Greg and I played doubles for a year, 2018 through to 2019. So really not very long ago at all. Yeah, so to answer that question, I think the mental side is everything. And it's something we don't train. So that in itself is just a, a huge statement. If you ask any athlete, they'll say the game is 90% mental. They'll say the game is played on a six-inch field between your ears. You know, I'm sure we've all heard that statement before. But we don't practice it. We don't train it. We're, as a culture, we can be afraid of psychologists. We can be afraid of reaching out to get support. So that, again, that's another reason why I'm trying to launch this program. Well, I say try to. I've already launched it. Is because I want players to sort of access that. And, you know, through me, I can introduce them to my sports psychologist, Saqib, if he has the time, of course, he's a very busy man. But the mental side is huge. And when it comes to on court, yeah, you can absolutely shout a guy off the court. I've done it (laughs) several times and with Greg as well. Sometimes you can take it too far, definitely. And I I have had times in my career when I've done that. I think if you remember, um, well, you won't necessarily remember, but I used to play doubles with Harley Towler before... Before I played with Tom, so I played with Harley just coming out of university and I think we played an event in London. They hosted a Grand Prix Gold and I remember we were playing a a Danish pair, Nicholas Noor and I think it was Overgaard, his partner. And let's say Overgaard and I have uh, history when it comes to competing and I know that if I get loud, I can get into their heads and make the game easier for myself. So in that game in particular, I remember it because it was the first time I played those two and Overguard just wasn't getting rattled and I couldn't work it out. You know, I was like, this is the guy. I normally uh, stress him out a bit. And then I realized that it was actually, he was keeping his cool because his partner would lose his head. 
So in that game, I basically, every single time I got an easy opportunity at the net, and this is definitely taking it too far, I think, but I would intentionally hit it as hard as I could at the other player, along with a really large shout and a really long stare. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, I wouldn't overly call it sportsmanlike conduct in that instance, definitely. But at the end of the day, we're athletes and we're trying to compete to win. And if you know that your opponent has a weakness, so let's say I'm playing someone and their backhand is really weak, I'm going to target that backhand. If I'm playing someone and I know that their mental is weak, I'm going to target that mental. So, yeah, so, <laughs> I'm sure Greg has plenty of other stories about me shouting people off the court, but <laughs> it's definitely a passionate thing that I started training at a young age and have kept going throughout my whole career. Sure. And many cards from it. Any yellows or reds from the, the shouting? No, I've never got a card. Oh, really? Yeah, not once. So, I don't know. I think I would say, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think my demeanor is, is fairly polite on court. I'd say I get on very well with all the umpires and officials, and I very much respect the rules of the game. So I've definitely been warned a few times, you know, saying, so I've had a lot of interactions with umpires where they say, you can't shout at your opponent. You have to shout in a different direction. And, you know, as soon as I get that warning, I try my very best to shout in a different direction, but it's kind of difficult. Sometimes it just comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. But yeah, no cards, no outbursts on court. I'm not the kind of guy who smashes rackets and you know, starts blaming line judges, etc. That's not in my, uh, in my book. And Peter, when we're talking about the mental side of the game and you're talking about how important that really is, if you're going to say one mental exercise that listeners could take for themselves and practice, what do you think is the something that's really worked for you, whether it's concentration on court, not getting stressed out, preparing for a match, nerves before a match, et cetera? What one exercise or one mental training do you live by? Oh, um, that's really interesting. I think on court, in terms of competition, I focus 100% on bringing myself back to the game. So that comes from a bit of meditation at home. So we end up, you know, a lot of the time on court, we end up getting distracted by lights, cameras, or unwanted thoughts. I know sometimes when I'm competing, I think, oh, I wonder what's for dinner tonight, which is an incredibly strange thought. But once you catch yourself in those thoughts and you bring yourself back to the game, you kind of ground yourself. So. I don't want to offer out meditation as a thought process for um, a general badminton player who wants to improve their game. So I think I'm going to have to go with a consistent preparation because there's nothing that can prepare you mentally as well as sticking to a solid routine. So if that routine is just taking some time to take a breath before you step on court, maybe go find a quiet space for a few minutes and just make that part of your warm-up routine. Get yourself warm and ready. Enjoy the adrenaline of, of the prep for the match. And then just take a moment to calm it down before you get out there and compete. Yeah, it almost reminds me of, say, when you're actually on court and you're playing, it's just sort of returning to center or returning to the middle of the court for, say, beginning. It's just sort of reestablishing yourself and finding yourself back in the process instead of, you know, focusing on things that are beyond the game in that play. So there's one final question here from Jackson Kurtz again. 
that he's asking. So in Canada, what are some of the things that you can do to get noticed by sponsors? Oh, great question. The Canadian sponsorship market is pretty locked down in terms of, you know, for the national team, it is Yonix or nothing. For juniors, I think you have to work pretty hard to get yourself a sponsorship at a junior level. But I think the biggest key to getting noticed by sponsors is to be more active. When I say that, I mean in terms of social media, in terms of training, in terms of approaching those sponsors. Don't be afraid to get rejected by a sponsor. And if you get offered a deal that you don't think is right, don't take it. These are all signs of building your own brand, building your own strength. And I think if you're really looking for a sponsor in the Canadian market, your best bet is to pick an avenue that you want to go down. So if you want to get sponsored by a certain company, you need to approach them. You need to to manage your media so that you become desirable for them. Because when it comes to a sponsor, it's not about just getting given free stuff. It's about what can you do for them? What can you bring to the table for that sponsor? And that's when you have to sort of realize what your worth is and what in terms of like sponsorship worth and what you can do to earn those free products or to earn that financial contract. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I guess from that perspective, it, it's selling on both sides, isn't it? Because the company's selling that they have good gear and that they can support you and give you what you need and what you want. But then on the other side, you have to sell to them. You have to sell what you can bring to the table, what value you can provide and all those things that, that you said. And then just touching on the courage to ask. So just having that real courage to ask, which I think you really honed in on really well there, Peter. There's one final question from the follow-up, Shaquita Deboulet. But I believe we've already covered this. So she's asked what are some of the difficulties being a professional player? And I think that you summed it up so well with your story. One, with regards to funding. Two, with regards to illness or or the pneumonia that you had and those concerns that you had over your health. So I think that's really covered. And your story really brings into light a lot of the challenges that athletes do have. And sometimes it's just the need for a change like what you've done moving to Canada. So At this point in time, Peter, we have been talking for almost an hour now. I'm not sure if that's felt like a short or long time to you, but it definitely felt really short for us. So just wrapping up here, we always love to hear from all of our guests who have so much wisdom as to if you had some pieces of advice, maybe three pieces of advice that you had for anyone listening who's trying to improve in their game or just be a better badminton player generally, whether it's at a club level, state level, national or international level, what would those eight own pieces of advice be? Oh, um, I personally, I think the most important thing about trying to be an athlete, trying to prepare is if something isn't working for you, you have to change it. We all fall into routines and patterns so easily and we do as we're told a lot of the time, which is a great thing, you know, to learn from your coaches, etc. But if you find that something isn't working, if it's not helping you improve, you can change it. And you can even talk to these coaches that you might be scared of, or you might be like, oh, they're going to be mad if I question them. They're not. They're really not. Because when you ask a coach a question, it shows intent. It shows that you want to learn. It shows that maybe you don't understand what you're doing or you want to find a new way to progress. So for me, the most important thing is to find your own path when it comes to training and competing. Yeah, great. I think, Peter, that's a fantastic take-home message. And I think we'll leave it at one because that's something so important. Whether or not you're a badminton player, an athlete, 
or whether you have other goals in life, it's just to find your own path and make sure that you reach out and ask questions that will really help you on your journey. So thanks, Peter. Thanks again for answering that final question for us. And before we finish up, I just wanted to see if you had any particular location that if one of our listeners was looking to get in touch with you, where would they go to find you? Oh, I mean, come down to the Mandarin Badminton Club. I guess not right now because Toronto has just gone into another lockdown. But yeah, in general terms, I'm at the Mandarin Badminton Club eight till two every day. And then a lot of days I'll be there in the afternoon as well, doing some extra coaching or training. So yeah, you can just come and ask for me. I'm not a scary guy. I'm always happy to talk. And if you want to connect with me on social media, my Instagram is at Peter Briggs official. And my website is briggsybadminton.com. So anything you want to put through there is going to come straight to me. Fantastic. So we'll make sure to put those links in the description of the podcast for the listeners as well. So once again, from myself and Jeff at the Badminton Podcast, Peter, thanks again for coming on to this episode. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, Thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.